Production. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have Ah, yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor quality industry. Today's broadcast is episode number 152, and today is Friday, January 22, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes is working from Studio C in Indian Lake, Pennsylvania. A woman's place is... In command, so the intrepid environmental Annie is at the controls. <laughs> today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with today's guest, Pat McRoy, Executive Director for the Alliance for Healthy Homes, halftime with Glenn Fellman and Dr. Dieter Weil, and the roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman and Annie's help, have been working on the iqradio.com website and we post a blog after the show each week, and we hope that you read it. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IEQ Radio and IEQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the new look and improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay. Contacting the show is easy. Simply dial 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. You can also download the show from iTunes. You can also get your IICRC continuing education credits, IEQ Council renewal credits, and now ABIH renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at ieqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at ieqtraining.com. How about trivia time, Annie? Congratulations go out to Joe Perron of Powder Springs, Georgia, for answering last week's uh, trivia question. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the trivia question for Friday, January 15, 2010. Name the scientific device which can measure lead levels in dust and provide immediate results. Okay, uh, do we have any intro music? 
Okay, Little Lead Poison Gene, I think that that is appropriate uh, introduction music for today's guest. Patrick McRoy is the Executive Director of the Alliance for Healthy Homes, where he oversees all operations of the organization, including its training programs. The Alliance is a national nonprofit public interest organization devoted to eliminating health hazards from housing. Founded in 1990 as the Alliance to End Childhood-Led Poisoning, the Alliance has a long history of training local advocates and staff of community-based organizations on methods to address health hazards in their housing. Under McRoy's leadership, the Alliance has been actively recruiting and training individuals and organizations to become EPA-accredited trainers under the Renovation, Repair, and Painting Rule. Recognizing the national need for additional training programs to serve the estimated 236,000 individuals who need accredited training before April 2010, McRoy and the Alliance have developed a two-day train-the-trainer program attended by over 100 individuals thus far at locations across the country. Well, good afternoon, Patrick. Thank you for joining us today on IAQ Radio. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, What does the Alliance for Healthy Housing do? Well, the Alliance really uh, is a national organization that works to eliminate health hazards in housing. Uh, We're based here in Washington, D.C., and we do a lot of work around uh, federal policy, uh, both legislative and regulatory, go down to the Hill and try to make sure they uh, pass some decent legislation from time to time and work with the regulators at EPA and HUD. Uh, make sure they give us some good rules. Uh, But part of our mission, too, is really to focus on local uh, capacity building, working with the folks at the ground level in communities across the country to make sure they understand what the hazards are and can advocate for the local policy that's necessary to actually address the health hazards in housing. Joe? Patrick, how how long has the organization – well, in the introduction, I think Cliff said it was 1990 that the alliance to end – childhood lead poisoning started and then uh, at some point you became the alliance for healthy housing when it was started back in 1990 how and why was it started well there is a number of uh, people who are very concerned about lead poisoning Uh, and the organization's founder was Don Ryan he worked with a number of prominent lead advocates at the time including uh, Dr. Herb Needleman Uh, And they came together and really realized if we want to end childhood lead poisoning and get lead out of houses, we really need a strong advocacy group in D.C. who can uh, really push the issue forward. Uh, So they came together and founded the Alliance to End Childhood Lead Poisoning. And we've been working on the lead issue ever since. Uh, A lot of that early work with the Alliance was really focused on passing Title 10 and getting it implemented. Title 10 is, of course, the federal law that regulates most of the uh, lead hazard control um, work that's done in the United States, both in terms of EPA and HUD. You know, we'll, we'll go into that in a little more detail in a moment for the listeners, but before we do, I understand you've uh, recently made a big announcement about the Alliance for Healthy Homes and uh, that you may be merging with or will be merging with another nonprofit. Can you tell our listeners a little more about that? Sure. Uh, we just announced that we are going to be merging with the National Center for Healthy Housing. Uh, national Center for Healthy Housing is, of course, another uh, prominent national organization that works on issues related to health hazards and housing. We've worked with them very closely uh, over the years. They're sort of our sister organization. And we realized that we would have a lot of efficiencies and uh, would be able to achieve a lot more if we teamed up uh, to work together. Uh, so we've decided to enter into a formal merger arrangement. And Go ahead, Cliff. No, go ahead, Sean. I was just curious, um, how do their 
how does their mission differ from yours? How do you see the two kind of um, using this merger to create some sort of synergy? Apparently, that's you know that's got to be some of the uh, reason behind the merger. How does their uh, mission differ from yours, and how do you plan on working together? Our missions are very similar. I mean, we both have the same vision of creating a country where there are no health hazards in housing, right? We're both very much dedicated to the same types of goals. Uh, traditionally, the National Center has been uh, much more involved in the science and technical end of the movement. They've really been driving forward a lot of the research and evaluation necessary to identify what is a hazard and what is the cost-effective way to address that hazard. Uh, the Alliance has traditionally been more involved in a lot of and working with a lot of the local advocates and actually getting the change to happen on the ground. So we thought by working together we'd be better able to apply some of the science and research uh, to local efforts and better inform uh, research and evaluation priorities based on what's happening in the field. Uh, so we thought it would be a real good marriage in that sense. Both of our organizations have been very involved in policy uh, and in trying to get change to happen here in D.C., so we thought that we could complement each other's efforts very well on that and avoid duplication. You know, I'm curious after um, there was a big announcement yesterday that, about the uh, Supreme Court ruling, and I, I didn't get a chance to, you know, we talked a little bit before the show, I didn't get a chance to ask, what are your um, thoughts with respect to how that ruling, is that, that going to make um, things a little tougher for groups like yours, or is it going to make it easier? Are you going to have a little more competition than you've had in the past, or uh, how do you think that will affect you? Well, I mean, it's going to change the atmosphere uh, in Congress. It, it's really going to open the floodgates to uh, outside lobbying and um, forcing uh, politicians to be even more accountable to big business than they already are. Uh, so I think that it is going to be a challenge in many sense to get a um, nonprofit, no money voice heard uh, in the halls of Congress. It's, we already, uh, you know, have to identify uh, politicians who are sympathetic to our message. Right. We, we don't bring uh, typically uh, a lot of political capital uh, to our, or, or real capital uh, to, to you know, decision makers. We, we have to identify people who are interested in the topic and are really interested in pushing uh, legislation that will help people in their districts. Uh, so in that sense, I'll make it a little bit hard to get heard if there's a be more people who are coming and waving green in front of decision makers uh, to try to get their attention. However, I think healthy housing is a, a bipartisan issue, and it's something that a lot of folks can get behind. Um, not many people want to be uh, poisoned or harmed in their home, so I think we have that uh, going for us, and, we'll, and we still have a lot of powerful advocates um, on the Hill and uh, in other uh, halls of power who will continue to meet with us and listen to us. Yeah, speaking of capital, how is your organization funded, and could you give us some sort of general idea on what the annual budget is? Uh, sure. I, we are primarily funded through some foundation grants. Uh, so we get money from foundations who are interested in the topic area and want to support uh, the work that we do. Uh, so that's probably one of our larger sources of funding. We also get a number of competitive government grants. Uh, so when HUD or EPA puts out a request for proposals, we put in an application and go through the uh, review process just like anyone else. Uh, and that uh, tends to um, support uh, a lot of our project-based work to actually go out and work with um, communities. So we've been very fortunate to get both of those. And of course, we, uh, like most nonprofits, uh, solicit donations from uh, the general public and people uh, who, under, who appreciate the work that we do to try to eliminate health hazards in housing. And that money is really critical to be able to do a lot of the policy work. You can't, of course, spend uh, federal grant dollars to lobby uh, the federal government. So we, we really need some of that outside support to support a lot of the policy efforts. 
Um, our budget typically uh, runs somewhere in the um, uh, $500,000 to $1 million range, although a lot of that money is actually uh, passed through dollars to our local partners uh, who we're working with. Not much of that money actually stays with our office. Okay. Patrick, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how um, I know you used to be with the the Chicago. I don't know if it's if it was the um, local lead program, the way you call it, the CLIPS. Um, and I shouldn't use an acronym, so if you can help me with childhood lead poisoning prevention programs. Yep. Okay, good. Uh, we have the acronym police on occasion that will uh, hit us if we use too many. How do, how does that work? So you you help them with what education with also maybe um passing through some of this grant money etc but you know on the ground how do these things you know how do these people make a difference well i think one of the most important things that can happen on a local level is getting local government involved in the issue and caring enough about it to devote enforcement resources right so what we try to do uh, is work with community-based organizations, whether they be tenant advocates um, or whether they be health advocates or children's advocates. We try to work with them to understand what the scope of problems in a home may be and how to identify and what's necessary to correct them. Uh, then with that information, we try to work with them to go approach the decision makers in their community and seek uh, policy changes, whether it be changes to the uh, laws or regulations to address specific hazards, or whether it's just a change in enforcement practices. Uh, so what we've seen being, you know, some of the most effective local policies uh, are uh, code enforcement strategies that are based uh, not upon complaint, but upon uh, either a random uh, assignment of a code inspector or based upon an annual inspection process. So we've had uh, worked a lot with local advocates to get this sort of code enforcement program that will actually make sure that uh, rental housing in particular is safe to occupy. I've noticed also, and we'll talk more about this later, you develop a lot of uh, publications and you do some uh, other you know, research-type projects to assist people in those very efforts. For instance, you have one on how to use code to assist with getting things done in, in rental properties, et cetera. Absolutely. Uh, we, we try to serve as a clearinghouse of information uh, so that folks who are interested in making a difference in their community can visit our website or sign up for our listservs uh, and learn more about what's happening elsewhere in the country, what some of the best ideas are and what's been successful in various other jurisdictions. You know, that's a great point, the listserv you have. and we're, Cliff and I are right now, um, We last week did our first consumer-based show, and we have another one coming up next week. I will um, let the listeners know now that we'll, we'll put uh, some kind of link up on the resources page so that people who are interested in joining the, the listserv, there's one for healthy homes and there's one for uh, lead issues, uh, we'll make sure we get that up on our resources page so that people know how to get on those lists. Great source of information. Thank you. Definitely appreciate that. Okay, Cliff. Can, yeah, let's let's uh, let's change pace a little bit. What about formaldehyde? Uh, does your organization have any interest in you know formaldehyde emissions of building Ab materials and things like that? Absolutely. Uh, after uh, the disaster in the Gulf Coast, I think we all learned a lot about formaldehyde uh, and its potential dangers. Uh, so there's, there's clearly a lot of issues with that that need to get addressed going forward, but I think it really calls attention to the larger problem out there of formaldehyde emissions from uh, building materials uh, and finished furniture products and cabinetry that we put in our homes. Uh, we've seen more and more studies coming out that are showing that uh, newly built homes, even homes newly built to green standards, have really high levels of formaldehyde in the air as all of these products off-gas. Uh, so we've been working with a coalition of folks, including the Sierra Club, uh, including my new colleagues at the National Center, uh, as well as with some industry folks to try to get some federal regulation to limit the amount of formaldehyde off-gassing from uh, building products. 
Yeah, that's really surprising. I, you know, the, the fact that green homes uh, have high levels is, you know, I just find that shocking. It's Joe? yeah, yeah. No, it really is disturbing. And I think a lot of the green standards organizations are beginning to adopt uh, as part of their elements the uh, some formaldehyde standards. So hopefully that will change, and hopefully we'll we'll get some national legislation that'll address it in all housing. Patrick, I wanted to go back to the uh, lead RRP renovation uh, re- uh, repair say, repair <laughs> uh, lead renovation and repair program. I guess it is a rule, and um, I want to get your opinion on whether you think this. And just maybe you could give the listeners a little background on what it requires first, and then I'll follow up with a question. Sure. Uh, The renovation, repair, and painting rule uh, is the last major piece of Title X to get implemented. So Title X was a landmark 1992 law to address lead uh, hazards in housing. And even back in 1992, we knew that renovation activities could create dangerous leaded dust. You go take a sledgehammer to a wall, you go cut into a wall, you're disturbing that lead-based paint, and you're creating a bunch of lead dust. And we knew then and we know now that lead dust is the primary way that children are exposed to lead. Uh, So back then, uh, they said, we need to find a way to make sure that when folks do renovation activities in their home, they don't create a lot of lead dust and don't leave a lot of lead dust behind that will then poison a child. Uh, So Congress told EPA, you need to regulate renovation activities to make sure this doesn't happen. EPA kind of studied the issue to death and hemmed and hawed a bunch, and then finally uh, in 2008 issued the regulations that are the Renovation Repair and Painting Program. And these regulations basically say that anyone who does work for hire in a pre-1978 home or child-occupied facility has to use lead-safe work practices and has to be accredited uh, by the government by taking an eight-hour class on how to work safely. Uh, So it's really a huge change for the contracting and renovation industry. Typically, a group that is not uh, very well regulated uh, and almost not regulated at all by uh, the federal uh, laws is now uh, being forced to really kind of approach their job a little bit differently and be aware of the potential for lead hazards and change the way they work a little bit so that they don't leave leaded dust behind. Now, this rule goes into effect in April, is my understanding, of this year. So it's coming up quickly. And in the introduction, I think we said there were, what, 360,000 people estimated, or 236,000 individuals who need this accredited training. It could be much higher, I guess. Um, Do you think there's any chance this rule will be postponed while people get up to speed? Well, uh, whenever EPA issues a major new rule, uh, when they launch the rule, they do a period of what they call compliance assistance. Uh, And that means for the first year or so of a rule, rather than go and find people the full federal penalty, which is $37,500, they say, listen, we recognize this is a new rule. You may not have understood everything or uh, heard about it. So as long as you go get the training and as long as you uh, promise to work safely in the future, we'll go ahead and waive the penalties this time. Uh, So I think there's really no need to delay the implementation of the rule because EPA, as a a matter of policy and practice, uh, is going to give people some time to get familiar with it and isn't going to issue huge penalties right away anyway. Uh, So there's certainly some folks in industry who would like to see the implementation date delayed, but I really don't think that's necessary. Now, this is also not right now on the list of... um... EPA priorities at this point in time. Is that accurate as well? That was a real source of frustration for us. Uh, So every three years, the EPA's Office of Enforcement uh, creates a list of priority topic areas. 
Uh, and that's the area where the agency is really saying we're going to put a lot of effort into enforcing these particular programs. And they did not include the new RRP rule on that list. Uh, we, along with a bunch of other advocates, have uh, written the EPA and really tried to encourage them to consider this. Uh, the comment period just closed on uh, Tuesday. I was just looking at the comments this morning, and in total, EPA received about uh, 50 or 60 comments, and a good 20 or 30 of them were folks telling them to add RRP to the list. So I'm, I'm hopeful that EPA will, will take those comments seriously and consider making RRP an enforcement priority for the next couple of years. Um, Patrick, can you give our listeners some steps which could protect children during painting and renovation and reconstruction? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the key is to follow the basic ideas of lead-safe work practices. Uh, when you boil it down, lead-safe work practices really means uh, keeping the dust you create to a minimum, uh, keeping any dust that you do create in a contained space, and then cleaning up any dust you generate really thoroughly. So when you're doing a job, when you're setting up the job, first of all, you want to keep non-workers out of the work area. Then you want to define the work area and put down some plastic so that any mess you create stays on the plastic rather than ending up on uh, the floor or the furniture or the carpeting. Then once you start the job, you want to use uh, techniques that minimize the amount of dust. So instead of just um, taking the power sander to the wall, you want to uh, work wet. Uh, and mist the wall and use some wet sandpaper to, to sand down things. And um, instead of taking a sledgehammer to open up the wall, use a knife and cut it open. Uh, techniques like that will greatly reduce the amount of lead dust you generate to start with. And at the end of the job, you have to clean up thoroughly. Uh, and this is probably the most noticeable change for a homeowner uh, who is using a lead-safe contractor. Uh, it used to be in the construction industry that we always went by the standard of broom clean. At the end of the job, you had to clean the area with a broom to the point where it looked uh, swept. Uh, that isn't good enough. Sweeping the lead dust just pushes it around, pushes it up into the air. What we consider clean oftentimes is actually very dirty if you do a dust wipe and send it to a lab. So the RRP rule requires and the best practices to actually use a HEPA vacuum and use a wet mop to clean the work area at the end of the job so you pick up any of the lead dust that might be remaining. I've got a follow-up question, Patrick. Um, it, you know, it would seem that, you know, in the United States there are many people that live in duplexes. Uh, you know, they own the duplex, they rent uh, the second floor or the second apartment, uh, you know, to another party. How do you reach the small real estate wannabe tycoons that you know own one unit or own two units or uh, you know something like that how do you explain to them the need for carefulness storing renovation I think that's going to be one of the most challenging parts of the RRP role to implement is to get it down to the real small guy uh, the folks that the larger renovation companies the folks that are represented by the National Trade Associations They'll hear about this rule. They'll understand it, right? But trying to get down to uh, the mom-and-pop landlord or the handy person who works off the back of their truck is going to be a real challenge. Um, and I think uh, we need some more public awareness campaigns to get the message out there, both to these folks, but also more importantly to the consumers. Uh, the consumers can really help drive uh, this action forward by demanding that folks use lead safe work practices. If we get contract uh, contractor referral services such as Angie's List to identify whether or not uh, the folks who uh, they're referring are certified as lead safe renovators, uh, that will make a huge difference in folks' knowledge. Uh, I think we also need to um, work on making the rule more local. So if we get local authorities involved in helping to enforce the RRP requirements, that will lead to greater compliance. You can imagine if you're going into a permitting office to pull a permit to do a renovation job, the permitting official asks to see your RRP certification uh, as a condition of giving you the permit, 
that's really going to help spread the word and help make sure uh, that folks are actually in compliance and working safely with the lead-based paint. All right. Well, we're going to pause now for half time. And, and we've got a, a text question we can do after halftime, too. Delighted to have as our first association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Now thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at bri-eaz.com. And John Don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. An newspaper man has to have a good story. Writing just news is so factually boring. I get a sign with that I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Leader of men, Glenn Feldman. Hello, how are you guys? We're good, Great. how are you? Great. Doing excellent, doing excellent. Good show today. Uh, great topic and a great guest. I got a couple items for you today for news, but I'm going to start off by uh, asking you you a riddle, Joe and uh, Cliff. You ready? Okay. Okay. All right. What two things do the following 15 people have in common? Andrew Osk, Wayne Baker, Dr. Bob Brandis, Gail Brandis, Dr. Harriet Burge, Dr. Jason Dobranek, Carl Grimes, Kevin Kennedy, Dr. Ava King, Dr. Joe Stebrook, Rebecca Morley, Dr. Richard Shaughnessy, Peter Sirk, Donald Weeks, and Tom Yacobellis. What two things do those 15 people have in common? All been guests on IAQ Radio. And we'll be speakers at the IAQA convention. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, you got it right. You got it right. Teamwork. And in addition to those 15 uh, leaders of, uh, of industry, you've got Dr. Richard Lockley, Dr. Marty Chapman, Dan Stye, Don Herman, Dr. Claudius Carnegie, Dr. Elliot Horner, Paul Shank, Dr. Florence Wu, Luke Gard, Hal Levin, Dr. Chin Yang, our friend Tracy Lance from EPA, Dr. Liv Hasselback, and about another 15 or 20 speakers at the IAQA annual meeting, which is taking place March 7th through the 10th in Tampa, Florida. Sponsors uh, for sessions at this year's meeting include uh, ISIAC, the International Society on Indoor Air Quality and Climate, uh, IESO, Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, and the University of Tulsa. And don't forget, the conference combines its expo with that of the Air Conditioning Contractors Association for the biggest indoor air expo ever produced each year. <clears throat> Again, that's March 7th through 10th in Tampa, Florida. You can get details at www.iaqa.org. And uh, keep in mind, you can save on registration if you register before February 1st. That's my first item for you today, gentlemen. Great. What else do you have, Glenn? Oh, two things. Uh, next, I want to talk just real quick about really what was, uh, you know, besides Haiti, what was in the national news headlines this week, which was obviously the election of Scott Brown as uh, the first Republican senator from the state of Massachusetts in about 40 years. Uh, guys, to quote your show motto, the rules have just changed again. <laughs> Uh, President Obama and the Democrats had one year to accomplish 
what they were going to get accomplished. And suddenly the uh, carpet got pulled out from underneath them, and the things they want to accomplish are going to be much more difficult to do, and we're going to need to see a lot more bipartisanship. How that's going to affect the IAQ agenda and the environmental agenda of the Obama administration is something we yet to, you've yet to see. But I think if you watch how, it, how they handle health care, it may give us some clues. So that's something we'll be talking about uh, for sure a lot in future shows. The last item of, of news I have for you is a, a great piece of news. Uh, this came out this week. The Indoor Air Quality Association and the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization announced that they are joining forces to facilitate the timely development of industry standards. Under an agreement approved last week by the boards of directors of both organizations, IESO has become a wholly owned subsidiary of IAQA. Both organizations uh, retain their nonprofit 501c6 status and independent boards. Now, IESO, for those who aren't familiar, is an ANSI-accredited standards development organization. And since 2006, IESO has created several standards project committees, each actively pursuing the development of an American national standard. Uh, at least two IESO draft standards are expected to be released for public comment this year. IAQA, of course, is an association with 4,000 members, uh, including about an equal number of assessment, consultants, and uh, remediation contractors. And Andy Ask, the IAQA president, was quoted as saying that by expanding IAQA's scope into the standards development arena, it creates remarkable opportunities for our members, benefits ranging from standards themselves to training opportunities to recognition by the world of IAQA members' ability to set parameters for maintaining healthy indoor environments. Um, last point I want to make on this is that IAQA and IESO were real careful to craft their new relationship so that it would cause no interruption to IESO's ongoing activities. Under the terms of their agreement, IESO's accredited standards operating procedures have not been modified, uh, nor has the uh, constitution of their standards development uh, committee and consensus body been changed. And uh, Steve Cantor, the IESO president, was quoted as saying, Legal counsel on behalf of our organizations presented details of the transaction to ANSI, who told us, or whose staff told us they have no concerns related to IESO's continuing status as an ANSI-accredited standards developer. So the rules have changed again, guys. You've All got right. another standards developer in the, uh, in the world, uh, or you should say, I say uh, not another one, but uh, one that's now being uh, supplemented by, uh, by a larger organization that can give it uh, more legs to run with. So well, I'm going to I'm going to riddle you back, Glenn. Go ahead. Uh, what is IAQ's news and Scott Brown's news have in common? You got me. What what do they got in common? Well, I think in both cases the tribes have spoken. <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. All, All right. right. Well, guys, thank you very much for a chance to come in. Can I join you for the roundup? I got a question oh. for your guest, and, and but I want to save it to the end. Please do. Please do. And I think we're going to just move over to Dr. Dieter for some comment from him. Dieter. There we go with Beethoven again. I love it. <laughs> uh, uh, Cliff, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Cliff uh, touched upon that a little bit earlier uh, uh, with the formaldehyde. And I said, how is it possible that in the year 2010 we are still talking about formaldehyde? And I couldn't agree with them more. I have been tinkering with formaldehyde when I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh. And this is 18... No, not quite. <laughs> um, this is 1970-ish. So this is 40 years ago, and it's mind-boggling to me that this is still an issue. We should have learned by now you know, that that stuff isn't good. I mean, I personally, uh, I think, I, I, I don't know, I have an allergy to it. If I smell formaldehyde, I throw up. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And I measured it in uh, prefab homes or whatever you call, uh, whatever you call them, the... Um, the and in those days, everything in there was in formaldehyde. This is 40 years ago. I thought that we had learned by now that this is not a good thing to do, and that is one of the things. The other thing um, which bothers me is 
quote, lead poisoning. On Monday, next Monday at 6.30, I have to start a sampling uh, for a company for airborne lead. I've been doing that for years and years and years. I never sampled for lead in houses and housing. But I cannot believe, and I just listened to somebody during a meeting, of how many lead poisonings, whether it's acute or chronic, it doesn't matter, we still have in this country, I mean, this is the United States, damn it. <laughs> I mean, if it were in Cambodia or if it were in Sudan, I would say, well, they don't know any better. To me, that is mind-boggling that this is still on the agenda, and it is, yeah, it definitely belongs on the agenda. I mean, lead poisoning is one of the nastiest things there is. And uh, it has permanent damage to the brain, and uh, it, it certainly, you know, it's not like drinking a shot of whiskey and say, hey, I was drunk, and tomorrow morning I'm fine. It doesn't work that way. That, those are two things that bother me, and why the hell didn't we do anything about it? Should we do more? Are we negligent? Um, I think those are questions. Okay. Well, Dieter, thanks for joining us. And somebody texted in. Were you doing testing in mobile homes on the formaldehyde or these? Uh, oh yes, I did, and I was in one of them uh, where I measured 30 ppm. Wow. <laughs> uh, that one was during the summer. It was a prefab, a mobile home. It had been sitting on the lot for yeah, complete. There was nobody living in it. So that was at the manufacturer's place. It had been sitting there in the sun during the summer for yeah, a couple of weeks at least. I don't know the exact timeline, but it had been there completely buttoned up because of rain and so on. No ventilation, no nothing. I mean, you can't ask for a worse situation than that one. It was yeah, brand new and uh, everything in that. I mean, this is, uh, Joe, this is 35 years ago or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's see if uh, Patrick has any comments on what you've brought up here, Dieter. Yeah, I mean, I th yeah, I think um, absolutely it's a tragedy that we haven't been able to solve lead poisoning in this country. Um, we got a real late start here compared to most of Europe. Uh, most of the most of the world, excuse me, banned lead-based paint in the 1920s. Uh, in the United States, we banned its use around farm animals at that time because we were concerned that cows might get lead poisoned from licking uh, white picket fences. But we didn't ban its use in residential paint until 1978. Right. Uh, so we waited a good 50 years after the rest of the world to ban it. Uh, so we have quite a bit more catch-up to do. Um, but it, it, all the studies show that the health impacts are huge. Uh, there was just a study recently out of the state of New Jersey where they quantified the health savings from eliminating lead poisoning at something uh, uh, in the billions of dollars for each generation of children. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just ridiculous that we haven't been able to solve uh, this problem yet, and that's why we're continuing to work so hard on it. Patrick, we had a text question come in from a listener, and they asked um, where they could find out uh, where they could go for training, and let me just before we go into that, um, because it ties into a, a question that I had. You know, we've got thousands of water damage restoration companies in this country, and many of them don't know this rule exists. Now, I know the some of the publications like Glenn's IE Connections and um, uh, some of the other publications for the industry have been, you know, have been pretty uh, making their um, readers aware of this but it still comes as a surprise to some people um and what i'd like you to do is two things first tell them where they could get some training and also maybe give them some idea of um you know what what they can do in the meantime because i think a lot of these folks are already using some of the techniques you've already talked about so maybe there's just some documentation they need to do besides the training mm-hmm yeah, uh, to find out how to get trained near you, the best resource is to visit the EPA's uh, webpage on the RRP rule, which is at www.epa.gov slash lead. Uh, and there you will find a little toolbox for 
uh, folks in the renovation industry, if you click on the little toolbox, you will then see um, another icon with a list of training providers organized by state. So you can find out who teaches the RRP class in your state and call them up and find a class. Um, the, the, and on that website too, you'll actually find some great resources for how to work safely. Uh, if you really want to get ahead of the game, you can uh, even download the curriculum uh, that EPA provides for trainers uh, and kind of go through the class yourself. But there's a lot of documents up there. There's a brochure called, uh, that we call the Steps Guide that walks through the process of complying with the rule. Uh, and there's other uh, documents up there that both detail the legal implications as well as the actual work practices. Now, would it just be the owner of the company that needs to go for this training, or do they also have to have some of their supervisory people trained as well? Uh, EPA basically requires that you have a trained person assigned to every job site, and that that trained person be on the job site when you're setting up the job at the beginning and when you're cleaning it up at the end. Uh, so it depends on how many jobs you have going at once. Now, are these... Now, we've got water damage restoration guys here that we're dealing with, Patrick, so they're called in on an emergency basis. Is there any exemption for emergencies under the rule? There is a partial exemption for emergencies. So if it's an emergency job, meaning one that wasn't planned uh, and has to be done right away to protect property value or health and safety, uh, the uh, work is then exempt from the setup uh, and work practice and training requirements, uh, as well as the pre-notification requirements to the occupants and landlord. Uh, however, after the work is done and the emergency is over, uh, they are still subject to the cleanup provisions of the rule. Uh, so a certified trained person has to be there on site to actually clean up after the job and make sure any lead dust that was created uh, is removed correctly. Now let me let me also verify. Um, do they have to establish? I mean, these are pre 1978 homes, residential properties. Do they have to establish whether or not there's lead in the paint, or do they just assume there's lead in the paint and proceed as though there is lead in the paint, whether it's there or not? The paint is guilty until proven innocent. Uh, so you have to presume the paint is lead in any pre 78 home. However, if you have the paint tested and can prove that it is not lead, then you can get out of the rule. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great. Cliff, anything you'd wanted to follow up with? Well, actually, I wanted to go back to the formaldehyde thing again, because Dieter said something, and I wanted to uh, ask uh, both Dieter and Patrick uh, the same question. You know, uh, Dieter had mentioned that he tested and had these really, really high uh, parts of formaldehyde in this mobile home that had been buttoned up that was still on a manufacturer's, uh, you know, work yard. Well, my question is, is in a situation like this, does formaldehyde redeposit into other materials if it's not ventilated? So you have these building emissions, every, you know, they're, they're in the air, and, you know, what happens to them if they're not ventilated? You know, do they end up depositing... Uh, into other materials that weren't contaminated with formaldehyde initially, or do you know? I'll, I'll let the good doctor take a stab at that one. Peter, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay. I don't well, know. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a tough one. And every 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 situation is a little different. I don't think you can just make a blanket statement. You got to do this and this and that. Yeah. Okay. Tough tough question. We'll have to uh, do a little research on that one, Cliff. Absolutely. I I, I think the, the the one comment that I was thinking about is if they had some sort of material to adsorb it, um, and there are a number, you know, whether it's activated carbon and or. Um, there's alumina that's treated with potassium permanganate that's known to be able to grab it. I'm just wondering if they can't just pull it out of the air. And even, you know, when they're shipping these houses or, you know, when, when they're putting the cabinets together, if they put little canisters in there, perhaps a lot of this stuff would be grabbed. Uh, but the you know, saving before. grace is that, yeah, it, it's not there permanent. It's not like lead. I mean, if there is lead today in your house, it's going to be there in 50 years. 
if you don't remove it. That right. is, on one hand, the beauty with formaldehyde, it does break down. But, you know, I don't want to be uh, uh, around it uh, before it breaks down. <laughs> and there are, I, there are so many other glues available today, whether it's polyurethane, and even the phenol formaldehydes are more stable than the old formaldehydes. And this is what bothers me. We knew how to do it right 30 years ago, and we didn't do it. That bothers me. Well and I said. guess I would add, too, that, uh, you know, if we could develop an absorption system that works, that might be a good remediation strategy for existing uh, facilities. But ultimately, I think the lesson we've learned from lead and so many other chemicals is that prevention is really the key. And we want to get that formaldehyde out of the building products to start with so we aren't having to gamble with remediation systems or engineer a solution that wouldn't be necessary if we manufactured correctly in the first place. Agree. Patrick, I know we're running a little short on time, and I really would like to get to a couple of documents your group has developed. Uh, Cliff, did you have anything else before we go to that? No, no, I I agree. I think we, we should get into the documents, Jim. Okay, great. You have some uh, tremendous documents on your website, and and one in particular that I I just picked up. I you know I was looking through your website, and um, I was looking at a document that was developed after Hurricane Katrina, and it was on um, rebuilding flood damaged homes, and it's a manual for safe, healthy, green, and low cost restoration for the Gulf Coast. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that manual came about, and then maybe I can talk to the listeners a little bit about why I think it's such a tremendous resource. Sure. We we love that book. It's one of the most popular downloads off our website, and uh, it was really a, a labor of love for the folks who uh, worked on it. Uh, we did it in collaboration with a fellow uh, named uh, Dennis Livingston, who's a carpenter and community advocate uh, and an illustrator. He did all the drawings in that book. Uh, but the idea was really that we have a lot of people who had homes severely damaged by flooding and were really faced with having to do a lot of the restoration work uh, themselves. And there's a real lack of information about how to actually go about doing that work in a way that was safe uh, for them and resulted in a home that was safe to live in uh, and that could be done in an affordable way. Uh, so we really wanted to sit down and create a manual that was real simple, uh, real focused on the how-to uh, in order to be able to help people do that. And we actually used it as sort of a uh, training manual, uh, in a part of a train-the-trainer program or where we went down to the coast with Dennis um, and actually uh, delivered about six or seven classes of train-the-trainer on how to teach people to kind of use that book to uh, do flood restoration in the Gulf. Uh, and we later did the same sort of thing uh, down in southern Illinois after uh, some Mississippi River flooding, too. Um, and we recently, uh, HUD recently approached us and asked if they could print the book in quantity uh, to help distribute uh, to locations around the country for future uh, flood work. So we're very excited about that. So you, you did one for the Illinois um, construction types? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of um, community development agencies, actually, in the affected communities uh, who were working with local contractors and homeowners to try to do uh, flood restoration. Because that was one of the things I, I was really impressed with when I, you know, I, I downloaded this book, and uh, manual you call it, I guess, um, and I was looking through, and, and the building science issues are presented really well. I mean, starting with the most basic things like the terminology, the correct terminology for all of these different components within a home. And it's a tremendous resource for listeners, even if it's just to download it, to look at the terminology and the building science basics. And then you also did a, a wonderful job, I thought, of breaking down the most basic methods for getting the contents out of the home, making sure that the home is, is safe with respect to health and safety issues like electric and uh, gas and so on. And then also with the 
rebuilding and, and actually repairing these damaged walls and doing it in a way where you weren't necessarily just tearing everything out and uh, replacing it with new materials. It was, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, read for any of the listeners out there. I would encourage you to go and um, download that, Rebuilding Flood Damage Tomes. It's on the uh, Alliance's webpage, which is, I think, afhh.org. You betcha. Great, great document. Now, you've got a bunch of other documents on there, but I see we're running low on time. So, Cliff, maybe we should go to the roundup. Okay, Joe. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, hide him in, hide him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw hide. Let's get out of here, let's get out of here, let's get out of Okay, I think what we're going to, because Glenn had a burning question, we'll go to him first, and then to Joe, and then to Dieter, and then I'll clean up. Glenn. Hello, am I unmuted? Yep. Oh, sorry yes, about you that. you are. <laughs> All right, great. You know, uh, do you guys know who Inez uh, Tenenbaum is? She is the chairman of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and she made me do something this week that caused my 10-year-old daughter to weep buckets. <laughs> we buckets. I'm not kidding. My 10-year-old daughter was in tears. She told me in no uncertain terms while I was driving home that I was to immediately go home, find every piece of cheap metal jewelry I could find in my kid's room, and take it away. Take it away because of the cadmium. Uh came out last week that Chinese-made, mostly Chinese-made, um, jewelry they've gotten the lead out but apparently they've replaced it with cadmium which is more dangerous and can have worse health effects uh, than lead in many cases so my question for patrick was whether uh, the alliance has uh, dealt with this new subject which has just come up since there are you know so many homes especially homes with people who maybe don't have the uh, financial means of others where they you know they stop at the the 25 cent machine at the grocery store, and they buy these, you know, junky little pieces of uh, Chinese jewelry. Uh, anything going on to address that in terms of healthy homes programs? Uh, we've definitely been sending out alerts to local advocates, and um, there's been a lot of discussion of it on our listservs, which are read both by local advocates and a lot of folks in the local and state health departments. It, it's really sad that. We clamp down on lead. We get people to change the production practices. So what do they do? They substitute an even more toxic metal. It's just mind-boggling. Um, and when I was in Chicago, we did a lot of work actually going around and confiscating gumball machine uh, jewelry dispensers uh, around the city uh, to try to get rid of some of these hazards. But it, it really requires a, a strong federal program to address that. And I'm optimistic now with the Obama administration appointees uh, at CPSC that they'll actually have some teeth and we'll be able to address this. Well, I appreciate the response, and, and I'm not mad at uh, Inez Tenenbaum. She did the right thing, yeah. even though it did make my daughter cry. All right, guys, I'll pass it along to the next person. All right. Uh, Patrick, I just wanted to um, ask that, you know, since we didn't have time to go into all the documents that you have on your website, we talked about one. Can you pick maybe one other one that uh, is one of your favorites that you think people should be aware of? Oh, I love them all. But I think, um, you know, I was saying earlier that one of the key things we can do to make houses healthier is really look at code enforcement strategies on the local level. So I would really encourage people to check out a couple of publications we have um, on enforcing codes to ensure decent housing conditions and look at some of the proposals we've made to the International Code Council to modify the model building codes around the country to make them more health protective. And that's linked right off our homepage. You know, that's a great, uh, I, I, we didn't plan this, but, um, you know, I had uh, just put a post up. I, the Indoor Air Quality Association has a listserv, and I chose two of the documents to post on the listserv, and one of them was on the code enforcement issue. I think that's an area that indoor air quality people in general, um, we could all, learn a little something from the healthy housing people on how they use code to assist them in getting things done. Uh, at least that's my perspective. I, I was not as aware of 
code and code enforcement issues as I have been since starting to do this show and working with people from the National Center for Healthy Housing and people like yourself. So thanks for that. And Cliff, I'll pass it over to you. Well, I guess I have three things. I, I, I think we have a question from a guest, and I suspect that it dealt with formaldehyde. And what the question is, is he, he phrased it as, does the leakage ever stop? And I guess I would just rephrase it. Do materials that emit formaldehyde, do they ever stop emitting it? My, my understanding is yes over a long period of time. The, you definitely see a spike um, early in the product's life, and it, it does go down over time. So if you buy used um, wood, it is likely to be safer. Okay. Well, Patrick, thank you for joining us. Is there anything that you would like to add? No, thank you so much for having me. It was great, and um, I encourage folks to check out uh, our website as well as that of our new colleagues, the National Center for Healthy Housing, nchh.org, uh, and feel free to sign up for our listservs and newsletters so you can uh, stay abreast of the latest developments in the healthy housing world. Okay. Well, before we sign off, I'd like to thank our special guest, Patrick McRoy, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, Environmental Ann Kowalecki, the wingman, Chris Boisel, the IQ newsman, Glenn Fellman, and our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us Friday, January 29th at noon for the next broadcast of IEQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 